as, as you know, since I've been around for a year or two here now, uh, I don't often preach about politics, and I'm hoping that you'll understand that when I preach about politics today, I'm not preaching about partisan politics. Okay, this isn't about Republican and Democratic politics. This is going to the original meaning of the word of politics, which is a word that means how we live together. It just means how we live together. And so in a very real way, the minute you start talking about life in the kingdom of God, you have ventured into politics because all of what Jesus says about life in the kingdom is about how we live together within that kingdom. And so it's in that spirit that this will become a political sermon because it's about life in the kingdom of God. As we look at the scripture this morning, I would just point out before we begin that there are many times within our experience where a question that is asked is not really a question. You, I think you know what I mean by this. Um, perhaps to embarrass a political candidate who is wealthy, their opponent might ask them, do you even know what the price of a dozen of eggs is in, is in the grocery store today? I mean, have you seen the price of eggs in the grocery store? And, and that question isn't designed to say how much really is it. That question is to say, you know, you're so out of touch with your constituencies, you don't even know how hard it is to live in the world today. So it's, it's not really a question to get information. It's a question to embarrass. Or perhaps the question is to ask a person why we have such poor shelter opportunities in Connecticut. And the follow-up question might be, do you know how big the budget surplus is in Connecticut? And it's not that I'm asking about the budget surplus, I'm asking if we have a budget surplus, why aren't we doing something about these problems that we have? They're, they're fair questions, right? But the question really isn't about the budget, the question is about something else and it's just sort of related with an agenda behind it. People ask questions to make statements. People ask questions to embarrass others. People ask questions to make themselves look better. We're in Luke 20, 27 today. And the question that these Sadducees ask is not a question they're actually seeking an answer to. This question that the Sadducees are asking, it's a question that's designed to make a point. Listen for their question and see if you can figure out what they're really driving at. This is Luke 20, beginning in verse 27, and I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. This is Luke 20, 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. 
Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Verse 34, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So who are these Sadducees who are posting this question? In some ways, it's almost as if they are a political party within the Jewish system. Not so much political, more theological. Uh, they were folks who, on the surface of it, really only embraced the Torah, the first five books of the Bible as the scripture. They discounted the rest. They just lived their life within these first five books. And one of the things they affirmed was that there was no resurrection. There was no afterlife. There's no spirit world. None of that is true for the Sadducees. So it's a piece of Judaism within the large circle. And what law are they discussing here? They're discussing the law of leveret marriage, which essentially said that if my brother died before he and his wife had children, it became the oldest son's responsibility and then sequentially through the family to provide offspring to the wife for a variety of reasons. Um, first of all, uh, hereditary inheritances mattered. And so if there was no child in the marriage, the wife would have no resources, no prospects after her husband died. And so by having a child with this woman, I would reestablish the hereditary line of my brother, and I would then provide for this woman as she aged. Because this woman would have had to rely on her son to care for her in her old age, and the son would then receive the inheritance, the appropriate amount of the inheritance from the family for the continuity of the family line. So this is a, a law that comes from Deuteronomy 25. If you wanted to look back there, Deuteronomy 25, 5 you know, gives all the specifics of how this is supposed to happen, why it's important in Israel, and what it provides for. Um, in a very significant way, this is a law designed to protect the family structure. It's to help widows, families, and the continuity of their heritage in the land. And so the Sadducees are taking this law, this unusual bit of law, and using it to ask Jesus a question. And the question is simply this. All seven of the brothers married her, no children were born. Whose wife will this woman be in heaven? 
if she was married to all seven. It's one of those biblical questions you try to stump the new pastor with when he comes to town, right? Yeah, what does that odd verse back, back there in the book of Numbers mean? Or what, what is, and the, the pastor scratch her head because nobody knows the answer to those reasons. And this question is designed to show the absurdity of the possibility of there being a resurrection. The Sadducees are thinking in their mind, there's no answer to a question like this because really there's no resurrection. And we're gonna make Jesus admit it by asking this trip him up kind of question and we'll embarrass him at the same time. Not so easily embarrassed, Jesus does have a response. And he essentially says this, you know, you guys don't understand the age to come at all. I mean, if you really understood what the kingdom of God was about, then you would know there is no marrying in the afterlife. There's no, no need for that any longer. Things are gonna be completely different in that day. And really the question serves to illuminate your ignorance about what the life to come will be about. And remember, we believe that really the only person who has any idea of what the life to come, the age to come is going to be, is Jesus, who came to hear from somewhere else to begin with. So the only expert there is is Jesus, but the Sadducees in their lack of humility have puffed themselves up to believe that they are the experts. So it's a resume with no foundation, essentially. So Jesus responds. He makes two very simple and specific points to help these folks who are listening to him understand at least a little bit about this age to come. The first thing he does, I, th I think this makes perfect sense, he, he talks to them about Moses and the burning bush. So it's interesting to me, by talking to them about Moses, what he's essentially done, is taking the Sadducees back to the five books that they embrace, right? He's not gonna quote the prophets or Isaiah or any of that kind of stuff to these folks who only embrace the Old Testament. But he takes them back to their scripture, to their understanding and says, well, wait a second. You yourselves affirm this part of scripture where God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And, and what does God say to Moses in the burning bush? He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice, he says to these Sadducees, he doesn't say, I'm the God of your ancestors who have all died and are now dead. He says, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And if he's the God of those who are still living, there must be a life after death. There must be more than what we experience there. There must be a spirit world. There must be a resurrection. And so, you guys, you're really not even interpreting your own scriptures correctly because God is the God of the living, not of the dead. That should give us all comfort, right? Because it's not just the patriarchs who are alive, but precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints, and we know that the saints are alive in Christ. And so this brings confidence to us as well that he remains the God of the living and not the God of the dead. 
But then there's a second thing he says. I mean, he, he says there's no need for marriage in the age to come because life in the age to come supersedes the life that we have now. Life in the age to come is so much better than you can imagine. There are so many less limitations in that life. There is, there's increased intimacy. We know all of you, we know each of us much better than we can possibly know here. And, and there's no more death. So we don't have to worry about things like marriage and other stuff. We all live together forever. There's no ending to our relationships with one another. We have freedom. And because there's no death, and this is what's implied in this passage, the laws that care for women when their spouses die don't have any meaning anymore. Do you catch that? That's what this is about. The whole question is about the protection that the Old Testament provided for women. And Jesus is saying, well, women aren't gonna need that protection anymore. Well, why? Because they will be perfectly safe and you will all be provided for equally in the kingdom of God in the age to come. There isn't any reason to fear. I mean, if you think about it, the public institution of marriage, which originally was to protect women through childbearing times, isn't necessary anymore. And it's absolutely the foundation of what Jesus is saying here when he says that all of those things that we do as a society to protect this little bit of the culture or this gender or this or those kinds of things, all of that stuff goes away in the age to come because it will all be perfectly accomplished in the age to come. No one is at risk. No one needs special protection. No one needs Here's where I'm struggling in this passage. We've heard the message of John the Baptist, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've heard Jesus proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is here now. Where Jesus is present, the kingdom has already appeared. It's present. And we understand that when we come to Christ, when Christ comes to live in us by his Holy Spirit, that we have stepped into the kingdom of God. And so it seems to me that in the kingdom of God, there should be no risk to anyone either, right? I mean, if we're already living in the kingdom of God, if we're already living as citizens of the age to come, then there shouldn't be any need for special protection for anyone because we're already treating one another so well. We're already caring for one another so well. We're already making sure our women don't need special protection. But it's just not true. We haven't arrived at life in the age to come yet for some reason. And so then it becomes the job of the church, of those who are in the kingdom, to provide the protections 
for anyone who is not feeling safe, who is feeling at risk. Because somehow we've got to fill in the gap. We've got to do the things the law intended to do. We've got to do the things that will be achieved in the kingdom of God here and now if we are really going to emulate what life is going to be like in the age to come. And that means we've got to take up some really difficult things. How do you live as a citizen of the kingdom now in order to advance the agenda of the kingdom of God someday? What do we have to do? Equal pay for equal work? Does that need to be the motto of Christian business folks? I, I think of Chick-fil-A closed on Sunday because everybody deserves the Sabbath. I think Christian business folks have to wrestle with this. I think all of us have to wrestle with this. If we have folks in our congregation who are at risk because of the circumstances they've endured in life, we've got to make up the difference. We've got to step up. We've got to make sure that they are not at risk, that they are not threatened. We, we've got to step up if we're going to live according to the politics of the kingdom of God here and now. There's no excuses for anything less than that. We're not waiting for heaven to accomplish justice. We're doing justice now because we already live in the kingdom of God. And the spirit of God is going to have to help us understand how to do this. Now I hope you understand, I'm not talking about any government programs here. Life in the kingdom of God will never be determined by our government. There is a king already, he doesn't need any help. He's completely sovereign, he's on the throne, he reigns. But he, tells his citizens how to live. You know, it was just a few chapters ago in Luke where Jesus gives a little parable and at the end of the day, after all the servants have come in from the field, um, Jesus and his servants seem to have this little conversation. You know, it's all about Jesus saying, you should forgive people. And the disciples say, oh my gracious, how are we ever gonna do that? And Jesus says, well, if you have the faith, the size of the seed of mustard, you can say this mountain be thrown into the water and it will be. And his, and his disciples say, oh, oh my, how could we possibly forgive people? And then Jesus makes these, this statement. He says, which of you has servants who after being in the field all day expect to come in and sit down at the table and have the master wait on them. He says, no, servants, they do their work and they say to the master, we are only unworthy servants delighted to do your will. And what Jesus is reminding us again through that parable is that he is sovereign and he tells his children how to live in the kingdom, not the other way around. Right, And if Jesus is telling us here that there is a resurrection and that this is what the kingdom of God is like, 
then we have to figure out what it means to obey our king here and now so that folks around us aren't at risk. What are we going to do about that? Our kingdom of God culture should already make this a safe place for any group of people who feel unsafe due to prejudices of our culture. And that's true because we anticipate the resurrection and we celebrate it. We know, unlike the Sadducees, that there is a resurrection, that Jesus is going to return, that we are going to give account for his work, for our work in his kingdom, that we will stand before the judgment bar of God and he will ask us, you know, how, how'd you do about that? And I want to be one who answers, I did my best to care for those around us by the grace of God. I did my best to love my neighbor as myself and to encourage those who are weak, those who needed a drink, those who needed to be clothed, those who were in prison, those, you remember the passage, right? That's what I want to be able to say on that day. It's my encouragement that together we will embrace the politics of the kingdom of God to the place where we care specifically for those around us who are in need, who are unsafe, so that we can celebrate the resurrection when it arrives. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, by your grace, we ask that your transforming grace would make us aware of the needs that are around us so that we can be your hands and feet in the places where we live and where we work. We need your help to do this because we still have one foot planted in this old world, it seems. And it's so much easier to let other folks take, of the needs, take care of the needs around us than it is to get involved ourselves. But we want to celebrate your resurrection we want to acknowledge that there is coming a day when justice will be done perfectly, where we will no longer have to fear, where we'll no longer have to be at risk, where we no longer have to worry about the future, but we will live without the fear of death in your presence with our brothers and sisters in Christ forever. Lord Jesus, come. Raise our hopes. Encourage us, Lord Jesus, that together we may celebrate your resurrection. We pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand and sing a closing song with me? It's a piece of a song we sing. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord our God. Then on the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. 
Oh, trample death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore, days we will sing your praise oh lord oh lord our god he shall return in robes of white the blazing sun shall pierce the night and i will rise among the saints my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your Praise, O Lord, O Lord our God, O Lord, O Lord our God, O Lord, O Lord our God. Amen. And now to him who is risen, who promises that we will rise with him, who anchors our hope in resurrection and in a future unlike anything we can know. To him be glory now and forever. Amen.